over, right? And so hopefully you had a good time. Hopefully it was a blessing, uh, but Christmas is over. And so it is time to move on. Uh, maybe some people feel that way and uh, maybe you're excited to be able to move on. Maybe you're going to miss it a little bit. Um, but, you know, things don't always last forever and eventually it, there comes a point in time where it's time to move on. Uh, but this morning I want to talk with you a little bit about this idea of moving on. Uh, because Christmas is really something that carries with us throughout our entire year. And what Christmas means, obviously, and what Christmas is about uh, is something that we can carry with us throughout our entire lives. It's not just on Christmas Day. Uh, but, you know, obviously we celebrate in the month of December, over a billion people celebrated Christmas. Uh, there's, you know, candle lighting services and carols and uh, the smells of cedar and incense and the old story is uh, retold again and again. Perhaps even yesterday, you took time to open the Word of God and to read through Luke chapter 2. Maybe that's a tradition that you have in your home. Gabriel's visitations and the journey to Bethlehem, the arrival of a baby in the stable, the glorious announcement uh, to the shepherds in the night, the star in the east, uh, the mission of the Magi. The story is very familiar to us. And even though we live in a world uh, that has great religious diversity, where there oftentimes can be great doubt and disbelief about all things biblical, it is not doubt and disbelief that you and I who have gathered here today, uh, you know, it's not doubt and disbelief that we must typically guard against. Uh, most of the time, for, for most of us that are in this crowd, that's not the issue. The danger that you and I typically maybe would face is that each year we fall into simple familiarity, knowing the story too well. So well, in fact, that maybe we miss the wonder of it. Mark Twain said that familiarity breeds contempt. In the beginning... We think about our relationship with Christ and what that looked like and what that felt like. We coveted the presence of the Lord. But to hit today, perhaps, we tend to take it for granted. In the beginning, we were awed by him. But today, maybe we are just a little less amazed. His visits become more routine, more ordinary, more commonplace. The songs that we sing become habit. The Bible that we read becomes dry and old. The testimonies of our brothers and sisters don't move us because we've seen it, we've heard it before. And the birth of Christ, maybe the wonder is a little gone for some of us. And so this morning, I want to take a few of our minutes and I want to look at the Christmas story once again at the actual text of Luke's, Luke chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. But I want us to think about it in this context. It says, we read the Christmas story once again, how would God want to move our hearts again? You know, Christmas is over. It is time to move on, but not without the redemptive message with which Christmas comes. Just as he's moved 
in the lives of others some 2,000 years ago. And so my question for us all this morning is, are you ready to move? Are you ready to move? Maybe you've been through a move in the past, right? Moving uh, physically is not always a lot of fun. Uh, Sometimes there's a lot of work that is involved in having to move. It's a hassle. As as excited as you might be about where you're moving to, the moving process for most people is not super enjoyable. And the moving process a lot of times involves you have to get rid of stuff. Stuff that's not necessarily bad, but stuff that doesn't belong. Stuff that you is just holding you back, that's limiting you from being able to have or to, to be where you need to be. Have something new and have something fresh. Sometimes moving brings with it a cost. Right? There's an expense to moving. And yet, the move oftentimes is essential, important, and it brings about great fruit, and it brings about new life, if you will, that brings us to a place of both joy and redemption in terms of our lives, if you understand what I'm saying. And so this morning, I want to ask, spiritually, are you ready to move? Not just move on from Christmas, but to be moved by Christmas It might cost you something. It might mean that you have to let go of some things that hold you back a little bit. But the the gift, the the result at the end is so good. And it's so refreshing. And it's so new. Not that the message is new, but that its perspective and its life-speaking breath is new for each of us. And so, again, if you have your Bibles, I want to just sort of walk through Luke chapter 2, and look at how God moved through the Christmas story as he continues to move in our lives as well. The birth of Jesus right away at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, we see that the birth of Jesus moved literally Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. In verse 1 it begins, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. See, the birth of Christ uh, literally moved Mary and Joseph. Augustus Caesar was ruling, but God was the one that was in charge. It was just like what Brad was talking about earlier. God was the one who had a plan. He was the one that determined ahead of time that this would be the place that they would need to be for the birth of Christ. And he used Caesar's edict to move Mary and Joseph 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill his word. The same thing is true for you and I today as well. See, God calls us to new places that he has prepared. I don't know if you believe that. I don't know if you realize that. But God has a new place in this new year for you. He has a new place for which he is calling you. 
And maybe it's not a physically new destination. Maybe it's not a new house or a new place to live or a new job or anything like that. Maybe it is. But God has prepared and has a new place for you and I spiritually as we walk with him. When Mary said, be it unto me according to your word, she said that in chapter 1, verse 38, it meant that from then on, her life would be a part of the fulfillment of the divine prophecy. See, God has laid out a plan for your life. He has a new place that he desires and wants to take you. And part of that plan is going to be the divine fulfillment of what he has for you. He has something that is already ordained. He has something that is already laid out, that is already set in place. And he is in the business of moving you from where you are to the next best place that he wants for you. This divine fulfillment for Mary was found specifically in Christ. He was human, not an angel Jew, not a Gentile, from a tribe of Judah, from the family of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, the city of David. All of this occurred just as the scriptures had said, and Caesar unknowingly played an important part. Aren't we thankful that there is no governing authority, there is no person in this world that is going to deviate the will of God for our lives when we are faithfully following him. That God has something that cannot be disrupted even by the greatest individuals in our world. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. See, God has given us his word. But it's not like God just sort of handed and said, here's scripture, you know, this is everything that you need and I'm gonna disengage. But in fact, God watches over his word. That he watches over the promises with which he is extended to us and he fulfills them in our lives. It is the places that he calls us to, both spiritually and in our relationships and in our physical world. But it doesn't just stop at uh, the, the places that God takes us. But God also calls us to a place of trust. In fact, trust is the preemptive element to the places that he wants to take us. We must trust what God has for us in order for us to be able to move to where God has established his next steps. The journey for Mary and Joseph must have been very tiring. But she rejoiced in doing the will of God. Why? Because she knew that her steps were laid out. Her steps were planned out. Her place was right because it was in the will of God. Think about this. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Maybe it was the ideal birthplace for the bread of life, John 6, 35. Bethlehem was the birthplace of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. David means beloved. He was from the line and lineage of David, beloved. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is called the beloved. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, he is at God's right hand. See, it was no accident that he ended up in Bethlehem. It was no accident that he was from the line and lineage of David. It was preordained. It was the steps 
that God was drawing Mary and Joseph towards for the fulfillment of the birth of Christ. But there's more than just that. The birth of Jesus also moved angels from heaven. Pick up again here in verse 8, if you will, with me. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. How amazed the angels must have been when they saw the creator born as a creature. The word becoming as a speechless baby. Let me take a quick sidestep here and consider in speculation what the perspective of the angels must have been. They were heralds that were delivering the message of God for years and years throughout the, whole, the Old Testament. They, they knew the prophecies. I, I don't know if they completely understood all of the prophecies, but they knew the prophecies that God had laid out. And then for 400 years, God said, hey, take a time out on this proclamation message thing. Just pause for a second. And no doubt that they were waging war on a spiritual level throughout that time. But I wonder if they s- sort of stepped back and paused and said, well, what, what's going on? What is this plan? What are these plans that God has for the people? And now here they see this plan, this Savior, this God with which with whom they've had communion and and operated in the presence of, and now God has become flesh. He has become this baby. You have to consider that the angels themselves would have been overwhelmed, perhaps, with the idea that God himself became his very creation in order to save them. And yet, we see this profound response. We tend to just sort of gloss over it. We sing about it, but it becomes so mundane in the Christmas story. But because of the presence of God, the angels showed up and it drew new praise. It was a new song for the angels. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. See, the angels knew the exchange that was happening. They, they understood the sacrifice that was being made. They understood the blessing that was being extended to all of mankind. And this brought about in them a song of praise, a new song of praise. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, Great indeed, if we, I'm sorry, great indeed we confess 
is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Isn't that good? The angels praised God. We see that in Job chapter 38, verse 7, that that the angels praised God at creation. And now they are praising him at the beginning of this new creation. See, wherever God shows up on the scene, there is praise. And even if we refuse to be the ones to do it, to acknowledge it, and to give the praise, there are angels that are worshiping and praising God when he shows up. God has new places that he wants to move you. And as you trust and as you move with him, there is an angelic praise that surrounds those steps of faith. The whole purpose of the plan of salvation is glory to God. God's glory had dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple, but it had departed because of the nation's sin. And now God's glory was returning to earth, but it was returning in the person of his son. C.S. Lewis said one time, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Isn't isn't that true? He goes on, he says, it is not out of compliment that our lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Zine, don't you know this? That when you tell someone that you love them, it's not just that you're stating a fact that is true, But it is also the fact that when you say you love someone, you are participating in the activity of love towards that person. That it is part of what brings the completion of that love, of that enjoyment for that person. That when I love my wife, I am incomplete in loving her and experiencing the fullness of my enjoyment of her until I express that enjoyment and that love for her. The same is true in our relationship with God. That our expression, our praise, is not just something that we do to communicate something that is true, something that's factual, but it's something that we communicate because without praising, without communicating it, our enjoyment is incomplete. The song of praise is significant here though because it's not just random it's not just something that is superficial for the angels the song of praise is rooted in the message of praise literally the angel said i announce to you good news a great joy which shall be to all people he uses the word that means to preach the good news a word that luke uses Uh, often throughout his gospel and in the book of Acts. We see an emphasis here on a worldwide gospel. The good news is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for the entire world. See, the difference between encouragement and sarcasm is the fact that they both have a framework of praise, but only one has a a message of truth. The message that the the angels were bringing was one that was rooted in truth. That 
there was good news. There was, in fact, the gospel who had come in the form of a baby that was good news, salvation for everyone in the world. I wonder if we take time to pause and to think about that for a moment. That Jesus came for you. Once again, I don't want to speculate too much, but in that moment, as Jesus is uh, coming to earth and he's taking the form of a baby, God had your name specifically in mind. Just like he had given a name for Bethlehem, this place that it was going to be, God has named things in your life that he has set apart for you. God has intentionally given his son, not just for the world, but for you, for you personally. And that leads us to the third point. The birth of Jesus also moved the shepherds from the fields. Join me once again here in verse 15 of Luke chapter 2. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the, what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The first announcement of the Messiah's birth was given by an angel to some anonymous shepherds. And you've probably heard this before. Shepherds were really outcasts in Israel. Their work was, uh, was something that would not only make them ceremonially unclean, but it also kept them away from the temple for weeks at a time. And so they could not be made clean because they would keep going back to the fields. God does not call the rich and the mighty. He calls the poor and the lowly. It's not just for certain people who are uber spiritual. But God came and he wants to move all of us. Wherever you're at, whether you're new in your faith or whether you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, God has a new place that he wants to move you. Whether you are great in the eyes and stature of man or whether you are lowly in the eyes and stature of man, God has new blessings and new opportunities for you. The shepherds made an important exchange. They exchanged sheep for a shepherd the Messiah came to be both the good shepherd and the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world. These shepherds were caring for their flocks and they would provide sacrifices for the temple services. And so it was fitting that the good news about God's shepherd and lamb be given first to the humble shepherds. There's an exchange that takes place. So we have to exchange the things in our life, the, the things that uh, maybe are holding us back from experiencing all that God has for us. Maybe it's sin in our life that we have to deal with, but maybe it's just good stuff, but it's too much and it's keeping us, it's getting in the way of what God has for us. 
There has to be an exchange. And sometimes we can say, you know what, listen, my duty, my responsibility is my sheep. That's important, that's good, that's what I need to do. And yet God is asking us to exchange the sheep for the shepherd. And it's time to leave. Now, don't misunderstand, I'm not saying to quit your job or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes God calls us to change what we believe to be our responsibilities because he has something greater that he wants us to pursue and to follow. God gave new purpose in becoming faithful witnesses in the story with the shepherds. See, even though they were some distance away, they were willing to make the trip. This might have been uh, the first Christmas rush, right? Probably wasn't that busy back then. Uh, The verb found here in verse 16 means found after search. The shepherds knew what to look for, and they found him and they worshipped him. They received by faith the message that God had sent them. And they responded with immediate obedience. And after finding the baby, they reported the good news to others. It says in scripture, glorifying and praising God. And so in this way, the shepherds became like the angels. They took the place of the angels The angels had come in announcing the birth of Christ and singing the praises of the Savior. And the shepherds took that and they ran with it. And they became the ones announcing the Christ. See, we just mimic what has been shown to us. You know, how hard is it to to share the gospel and to be the light of the good news of Jesus to the world around us? It just means that we mimic that which God has already done in our own hearts. It doesn't mean that you have to be a theologian. It doesn't mean that you have to say all the right words and do all the right things. It doesn't mean that you need to be in front and confrontational with people. It doesn't mean that you need to be laid back and just don't say anything at all to not be offensive. It just means to mimic, to reflect, to echo that which God has done in your life. And it becomes the message to the world. It becomes the gospel of praise. Because they were unclean, shepherds were not permitted to testify in court. But God used these humble shepherds to become the first human witnesses that prophecy had been fulfilled and that the Messiah had been born. Why is that? You know, have you ever thought, why didn't God just send the angels everywhere, all around the world, to everyone? Like pop up in their bedrooms and, you know, at the marketplace and just, you know, there's enough angels to go around. He could have just sent them all over the place to just tell everybody all at once. Well, I think, I think that there's an important difference between the human testimony and the angelic testimony. There's a place for both. But think about this, angels never experienced the grace of God. And so they cannot bear witness to that which they have never experienced. But as humans, we experience the grace and goodness of God. We can bear witness to it. We can tell others about the Savior. And it is a solemn obligation. That is a great privilege. And we who are believers, must be faithful. And so, the gospel moves. This is the Christmas story. But it's not just a list of events that happened that are part of this birth of Christ. 
But behind it, I think that there are principles of how God continues to desire to move in and amongst us, in our world, as well as individuals. And it all revolves around Christ, right? Obviously. It all revolves around the gospel. Because the gospel is at the heart, it is at the center of everything that moves us in the direction that is good, that is right, that is fulfilling, that is satisfying, that is rewarding, and that is eternal. It's the gospel. I hope this morning that you not only know the gospel, that you not only have embraced the gospel for yourself, but that you relish in the glory and the joy of the gospel. That it moves you, not just emotionally, but it moves you to greater steps of faith, to deeper levels of understanding of who God is and his word that has been given to us. I hope that it moves your relationships, that it moves how you conduct your work, how it moves how you interact with the people that you run into. It ought to stir our being into action if we're reflecting it. There was a farmer one time who went into his banker and uh, announced that he had some bad news and some good news. First, the bad news. Well, the farmer said, I can't make my mortgage payments. The crop loan that I've taken out for the past 10 years, I can't pay that off either. Not only that, I won't be able to pay you the couple hundred thousand that I still have outstanding on my tractors and other equipment. So I'm going to give up the farm and turn it all over to you so that you can salvage whatever you can get out of it. Silence prevailed for a minute as the banker took this in. And finally he said, well, then what's the good news? And the farmer said, well, the good news is is I'm going to keep banking with you. And sometimes not very good news, is it? You know, good news is very subjective. Sometimes it's a matter of perspective. But listen, the gospel... No matter how you look at the gospel, it is good news. The the idea that Christ would come and he would sacrifice himself on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. You know, there was a a famous um, cake company uh, that sold boxed cakes. And and maybe you've heard this before, but they sort of... Uh, marketed their product where if you uh, bought this box make a cake mix of cake uh, all you had to do was add water and it would bake this cake for you and it was going to be great and their sales were down in the dumps they they plummeted and they couldn't figure this out and finally what they did is they did some research and they finally figured out that the reason that it wasn't selling well when this first came out was because people just thought that it was too easy that it was too simple that it was like too good to be true. And so you know what they did? They changed it. They made it so that you needed the mix and you needed to add an egg and you needed to add some butter and some water and then you could have a cake. And you know what? It took off. And all of a sudden people decided, see, sometimes we have a hard time embracing things because we think this just can't be right. It's gotta be, there's gotta be some catch. There's gotta be some trick. It's too easy. And yet the gospel is so simple. It's so good. What is this good news? Not that God sent a soldier or a judge or a reformer, but that he sent a savior to meet man's greatest need. It was a message of peace to a a world that had known much war. And the Pax Romana, for some of you that are historians, you know this, that had been in effect since 27 BC. But the absence of war 
doesn't guarantee the presence of peace. There's a Stoic philosopher who said this, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. Isn't that true? See, there is a good news, there is a gospel that brings a peace into our lives that cannot be replicated, it cannot be imitated. It is only true as it relates to God. The the Jewish word shalom, peace, means much more than truce in the battles of life. It has more to do with character than it does with circumstances. Again, if you still have your Bibles open, look back in verses 9 through 14, and you'll see why the gospel is good news. Number one, it banishes fear. The gospel banishes fear. Verse 9, it says that they were filled with great fear. There had been no word from God for 400 years, no word until the angel spoke to announce the birth of Christ. The remedy to fear is the gospel. Are you living in fear? Do you have fear? Is, is there something that you feel like God is prompting to you to do, but it's just scary to take that risk, to cut those cords, to make that step of faith? The gospel banishes fear. Secondly, it brings great joy. Look in verse 10. Christ brings joy into the lives of all who come to him and trust him. John 15 verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The gospel brings joy. Are you dealing with the, the, the deep depths of life that are hard? You know, those are normal things to deal with some of the anxieties and the frustrations and the depression. And, and those are real things. But God desires joy. The gospel brings joy. It doesn't mean that you're going to be happy all the time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with things. But in Christ, there is joy. Number three, it is for all people. Again, in verse 10, he talks about this, that the gospel is for everyone. The prophet Haggai calls Christ the desire of all nations because we all need Christ. But See this here, verse 10 and 11, it's not just that the gospel is for everybody, but the gospel focuses on the individual. Verse 11, Jesus preached perhaps one of his greatest sermons to one person, Nicodemus. It's maybe one of his great sermons. Jesus cared about the individual. The gospel is for everybody, but the gospel is for you as an individual. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results from works. It's not what we do. It's not what we earn. But it is this good news that has been given out of great joy for you and I. And it's not just for us, but it's for me. It's for me. It's for you too. Not trying to take anything away from you. But sometimes we need to internalize and self-reflect on the fact that the gospel, the gospel, everything that you read, the story of Christmas 
was written for you. If you were the only person on earth, it would have played out the same way, that God would have sent his son to be sacrificed just for you. In verse 11, the gospel saves. He is the savior from sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost, and I love that, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is the savior from sin. He is the savior from self. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He is the savior of self, and he is the savior from Satan. Acts 26, verse 18 says, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that good news? It's good news. The gospel has saved us from our sin. It's saved us from ourselves. It's saved us from Satan who seeks to destroy us. Are we thankful that we have a savior? One person said it like this. They said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. It saves, the gospel saves. Number six, it glorifies God. Verse 14, the gospel proclaims God's remedy for sin. The gospel proclaims God's promise of eternal life. Nothing glorifies God as much as the gospel of grace. And every time that we preach the gospel, God is glorified. See, part of the reason that we stand up here and we proclaim the gospel is because we want others to know and to receive and to share in the good news. But the main reason that we proclaim the gospel is because God is glorified when it's proclaimed. However, the people who hear respond, however they choose to hear and to live their life, the gospel, when the gospel is proclaimed, God is is glorified. Don't worry about so much the response of others. God is glorified when the gospel, when the good news is shared. Number seven, and lastly, it gives real and lasting peace. Verse 14 talks about this. Jesus is our peace. He alone can make peace. Peace doesn't come by treaties or even just mutual agreements. It comes from the Prince of Peace. If you want to have peace in your life, it comes from the gospel. It comes from the saving grace. Yeah, you can find momentary peace here and there. You can kind of create peace in pockets, but you know that it doesn't last. You know that it's dis easily disrupted. True and everlasting peace is being able to walk through the circumstances of life, holding on to the prince of peace, even when there's storms around. In December of 1903, there were, uh, after many, many attempts, the Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. 
Thrilled, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine. And the telegram said, We've actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Catherine hurried to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message. He glanced at it and he said, How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. Yet he totally missed it. He missed the big news that man had flown. My challenge for us is that we would not just go through another Christmas and read through another edition of the Christmas story and miss the amazement and the awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it wouldn't just be another Merry Christmas, but that we would desire to, to see how God would move us and stir in us the good news overflowing into our lives. Let me close with this. Many years ago, there was a very wealthy man who uh, shared a passion for art collecting with his son. Uh, together, him and his son had um, priceless works that adorned the walls on this family estate. And one day, the nation was at war, and the young man had to leave to serve his country. And after only a few short weeks, his father unfortunately received a telegram. His son had died. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with sadness. The joy of the season had vanished with the death of his son. And so on Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened this depressed old man. He opened the door and a soldier with a large package in his hands greeted him. And he said, I was a friend of your son. I was the one that he was trying to rescue when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. The soldier mentioned that he was an artist, and he gave the old man a package. It was a portrait that he had drawn of the man's son. And though the world would never consider this work to be a work of genius, the painting, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man hung the portrait over the fireplace, putting aside millions of dollars worth of art. His task completed, the old man sat in his chair, and he spent Christmas gazing at the skiff that he had been given. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces of art for which museums around the world clamored. Half a year later, the old man died. The art world waited in anticipation for the upcoming auction. According to the will, the old man, the will of the old man, all the artworks were going to be auctioned off on Christmas Day, the day that he had received his greatest gift. The day soon arrived and art collectors from all around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled that day. The auction began with a painting that was not anyone on anyone's museum list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid, but the room was silent. Who will open the bidding with $100? No one spoke. 
Finally, someone from the back said, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's move on to the good stuff. The auctioneer responded, no, we have to sell this one first. Now who will take the son? Finally, a neighbor of the old man offered $50. He said, that's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell. Cheers filled the room, and someone exclaimed, now we can bid on the real treasures. The auctioneer looked at the room filled with people, and he announced that the auction was over. Everyone was stunned. Someone spoke up and said, what what do you mean that it's over? We didn't come here for the painting of someone's son. There are millions of dollars worth of art here. What's going on? And the auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. The message is the same for you and I this Christmas. Because of the father's love, whoever takes the son gets it all. And so our question, once again, is are you ready to move? Will you take Christ this Christmas? Because when you take Christ, then you get it all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for this age-old story of Christmas. Emmanuel, Christ, born into this world. God, I pray that you would allow our hearts to rest in the peace and the joy in the presence of the significance of this story. God, that we would not just sort of gloss over it once again as a story that is told over and over and over again. But God, that we would be at the very heart of what it's all about. The good news of Jesus. God, our desire is to know you, to walk with you, and to receive all that you have for us. And so God, by faith, we trust you. We trust your plans for our life. We trust our next steps. We don't know where they're at, but God, we're ready. We're ready to move. We're ready for new places that you want to take us, new depths that you want to bring us in our walk with you. God, we want our horizons to be expanded. We we want our spiritual goals to be increased. God, we ask for more of you. God, that your glory would not only fill this world, but God, that it would fill our lives. God, that we would be different people when we sit in these seats this time next year. God, that because of our deep, deep appreciation of the meaning of Christmas, God, that our steps this year would be exactly the steps that you have for us. That our joys and our peace would be found in you in each moment, in each day, in each month of this next year. God, may you be praised just as the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph gave you worthy praise at the moment of your birth. God, we stand, we sit, we 
praise you this morning for all that you are, all that you have done, all that we have been given, all that we've received, and all that yet awaits us. In your name we pray.